there's been projects that I've worked on where we went in, we looked at the numbers, we looked at the schedule, we said, this actually lines up. Good job. I have no idea why it lined up, but it did. But my more common experience has been, wow, those numbers don't really line up by orders of magnitude. How could we at an industry level start to change that conversation? Welcome everyone to Building Better Games. Today we want to talk about some of the entrenched problems in game dev and what you can do to overcome them. Ever been making great progress only to have seemingly unimportant scope dropped on you from above? Ever been asked to just go faster or get more done without any additional resources because of dates? Ever felt like there were just too many people doing disjointed work when the core game was still unproven? We're bringing in Joel McGinnis, a veteran engineer and technical director who's been making games in small and mid-sized companies for a few decades and has traveled all the way from brand new engineer to someone called on to speak to the board of directors. Let's talk about our industry. Joel, welcome. Anything more you want to say as an introduction for yourself? No, I think you covered it there. I've been around doing this for a good bit, like you guys have as well. And uh, we got together a while back and we started riffing on just, hey, how about that time when? And uh, it felt very cathartic, at least. We said, we should do more of this. So very excited to join you guys today. For me, too, one of the reasons I got excited about this is after our conversation, I made a post kind of outlining some of what I had taken away from the call. That LinkedIn post got so much attention above and beyond what I ever expected. And I kind of called out a division in thinking and structure between the business side of game development and the development side of game development. And the, the lack of crosstalk that occurs, I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, like I've done one-off consulting things where I've been asked the question, effectively boiling down to how much money does it take to make an FPS MMO-like destiny? And I'm just like, that question doesn't make sense and, <laughs> and it reveals a, an almost a misunderstanding. It's like, oh, for $23.7 million, you can have a double A quality, blah, blah. And it's like, this isn't how this works. But the core of your post there was like, hey, we're not making chairs. We're making, like, this is a highly creative, highly chaotic, high uncertainty environment where things change all the time and the outcome isn't always knowable in advance. And so stop treating it like it's a factory that's making chairs. And I think that was a big chunk of what really resonated with people. I think most people that have a lot of experience making games come to a deep understanding of the reality that it is chaotic, that it is uncertain, that the outcome isn't knowable in advance. So if you're doing development, if you're in production or you're a lead at any level, the thing that you focus a lot of time on is, wait, how do I manage the chaos? How do I sort of make order Mm -hmm. out of this soup? How do I incentivize people? How do I point people in the right direction? Mm -hmm. And then you come in contact with the business side. And so often you're like, okay, so here's how I've tried to organize and make sense of the world. And it's like, "Mm, don't care. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's how it feels, right? Yeah. And I think that's the core frustration. If you've been in the industry for 10 plus years, you've 
probably had that moment where you're like, wait, does this person, like, are they playing for the same team? Because I thought we were playing for the same team, but they don't seem to really care what my reality is as I'm trying to make a product with and for them. And so that's kind of the, I think, the nutshell uh, where we sort of were like, man, doesn't it just feel bad? Yeah, yeah. I think business people and marketing people often feel the same from their perspective, just through a different lens as well. Right. I, you know, I, I was at Dice and I spoke to a lot of folks on that side of the aisle, if you will. And they at times expressed frustration with like, hey, you know, remember that this is a money-making venture. Remember that this is a business. And, and for me, that's obvious, but I think for them, they felt like they had to remind their developers of that ad nauseum, that they weren't just writing checks for fun, creative side projects. Whether that's fair or not, I think that their version of that also is like, you know, we're both yelling at each other saying, you know, the other party doesn't really get it. I think, Aaron, you just really, I love how you brought in, like, this is on both sides of this. And there's this idea that the other is a black box, effectively. Like, if I'm on the development side, I may have a publisher, there's marketing people, there's people that are trying to watch, there's finance folks, right? The people who have to watch the money. They're looking, going, there's a black box over there and it's game development. And I really don't want to know what's going on inside of it. I just care what's coming out of it. And I think the challenge is that in both cases, we've structured our world so as if those black boxes can actually exist when in reality, all that they do is cause problems. Because the idea that a game has to make money is something that I think everybody on both sides has to know. But the finance folks deal with that reality every day in a way that the developer might not. And simultaneously, development, the chaos, the uncertainty, the trying to figure it out, that not knowing if I can get this done in three months and trying to figure out all these questions is something that the on the business side, they I don't think they want to be aware of, but if they aren't, it hurts their ability to do their job. Right. So one of the things that you said there is we structure yeah. these things as if they're black boxes. And I think that that's a really important thing to think about. When we're talking about development and we're talking about the business side of development, we actually have a hard time structuring development full stop, right? That's a huge part of what the industry has gone through over the last 10 years is figuring out, wait, how do we harness the chaos a little bit better? How do we come up with processes and strategies for creating structure? Well, the business side of the house does the same thing. They've got their structure for managing the, the chaos. We've got our structures for managing the chaos. And I have almost never been in a situation where those two structures talk to each other about anything other than musts. Mm -hmm. So we must deliver by this date because we have to see sufficient ROI by Q whatever so that the board of directors is happy, so that the VC is happy, so that whoever is happy, right? That could have very little to do with development reality of it's like, okay, it's cool that you want that. Right. You've also... I'm also being told that I have all these other things that have to happen as well. How do I reconcile this drop dead that I had no input on with this feature list that really 
you know, it doesn't look like it fits, man. I think if there was one thing that I could do in the games industry, it would be to figure out how do we have a different set of initial conversations when we kick off projects, when we start new development, Mm -hmm. how do we make it so that the business proposition going in feels more consistently probable, right? Because occasionally there's been some projects that I've worked on where we went in, we looked at the numbers, we looked at the schedule, we said, guys, this actually lines up. Good job. I have no idea why it lined up, but it did. Mm -hmm. And so everything's great. But my more common experience has been wow, those numbers versus what we're pitching don't really line up. By orders of magnitude, they don't line up. Yeah. And so how could we, at an industry level, start to change that conversation so that we identify going in, hey, let's have these numbers start in a place where they make sense. Mm. Who do you think is important to be in those conversations and what do you think that those people should talk about? So this is going to be maybe a little contentious, but I think oftentimes leadership at a corporate level and team leadership don't come to an early enough understanding of just how big of a total spend are you looking to put on this game? I don't know about you guys and the people that you've talked to, but I can think of quite a few conversations that I've had over the years where the way I've come to think of it is that people want to put a 60 million game in a 20 million box. And I think some of that is definitely on the development side of the house, right? Being realistic about, well, how big is a $20 million box? right? Because it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, that's going to be cool. Hey, we could do this and that and the other thing. And all of a sudden, yeah, you've taken that $20 million box and you've come up with an additional $40 million worth of features that you'd like to put in it. I'd love to see it even before people start to pitch, to establish that scope and to establish when pitching, how big is that box? Because I've definitely seen some cases and heard of others where people have gone out with a $60 million pitch and said, yeah, and we'll do it for $20 million. Right, right. And that's the one, whether you attribute that to ignorance or malice or however you want to attribute that one, that's actually the, the one that causes people the absolute most pain, right? Because... If somebody says, hey, I've got this 25 to $30 million idea. Can we fit it in this $20 million box? Yeah, you can kind of do that. You can make that happen, right? It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. You might hate yourself afterwards, but you can do it. But if somebody has the $60 million game and you're trying to deliver that in a $20 million box, that's just not happening. You know, we talk about this deal, this contract, mm-hmm. bifurcation between those who have the money and those who have the skills to make a game. 
who needs to do this differently? Obviously, like founders, right? Okay, so if I'm founding and I'm making a pitch, what size box am I expecting to get? What do I need? What do I think is right? But what else? I definitely think that what we need to be seeing is at least getting an interdisciplinary gut check from your team before going out and and shopping a project. Do you have an executive producer or a senior producer who can say, that doesn't look like any schedule that I've shipped before? Do you have an art director or an art lead who can say, yeah, I think we can make the art for that in that time frame for that amount of money. And do you have a engineer? Like just an initial pass from all your discipline leads to say, does this just pass the sniff test? You know, Joel, something that strikes me as I hear you talk about this, and we constantly hear this story of they tried to fit the $60 million product into a $30 million box. Like that's sort of like a tale as old as time. One of the things that strikes me is what does it even mean to have a $60 million product? Yeah. What does it even mean to put it in a $30 million box? Because I feel like after shipping product for a decade, I'm just like, those are meaningless numbers. Like I could have an art team that could do, figure out a way to do a third of the work for half the cost that another art team would take twice as long and twice as much money to do. I don't even buy into the idea that you can sort of sketch out a product or have a design doc and be like, well, obviously that's a $60 million game. I think that's part of the problem, you know? I'm actually going to disagree with that one a little bit because I think that that's actually one of the places that we get in a little bit of trouble because the business people, it's everybody thinks that the development team is Scotty. Right. Everybody thinks that the development team is sandbagging that, you know, if you just squeeze them a little bit, they can get a little bit more out. Yeah. Right. And the reality is, to some extent, that's true. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, this is why I really, truly see a big jump between the 20 million dollar project, the 60 million dollar project and the 100 million plus project. Right. Because if somebody's in the ballpark and we're wrong, that can be made up a little bit on the development side. The other thing is that I've talked to enough business people who are like, look, everybody understands that it's always a negotiation. The deal is never the final deal. We're going to go back. We can get another six months. We're going to go back. We can get another X million dollars, another $5 million, whatever. Right. So there's an understanding that both on the development side and on the business side, that there's room to flex. And that we've, we're good at flexing. The trap that I think that we fall into is not understanding that there's flex for, say, 10%. Mm-hmm. Like a 10% over-under flex, maybe maybe 15, maybe 20, someplace in there, there's a number that between the dev team and the business side negotiating, you can flex and make stuff happen. And that's the success stories that people see of, oh, it didn't quite work, but then it did and everything was great and we all were happy, right? The sob stories are those order of magnitude cases, right? We're not talking about, hey, there's a rounding error here or there's some slop in the schedule or we need to go back and renegotiate six months. It's where you've completely wrong-sized the product that you're pitching versus 
the contract that you've negotiated. When I've witnessed those scenarios, it doesn't feel like a situation where the executives are like, hey, I bet you can do this 60, quote unquote, $60 million thing with 20. Like, I bet I can make you do that or I can figure out a way to squeeze that out of you. I feel like they only ever were willing to give 20 for it. You know what I mean? Right. That's kind of my point, though, actually, is that people always think, hey, I'm making a project in this 20 to 35 million dollar range. We can make this happen. The budget's lined up. It's going to be fine. I don't know what these guys are whining about. That's the cynical version right? That they don't know what they're wanting about. The, the more upbeat version is we're going to figure out a way to make this happen, both through development and business and doing negotiations, right? What I'm saying that where the problem kicks off is when there's been a fundamental misassessment that everybody thinks it's 20 to the 30 million, but the scope of what's actually being talked about is well in that $60 million box. Let me give you some examples of why I think these are sort of identifiable, right? For example, if you start writing a big script and you start talking about a bunch of mocap and you think that you're talking about a $20 million project, unless your game is just about mocap and VO, I really question whether you're talking about a $20 million project, because just getting the mocap and VO itself is a cost and then getting that in game and getting the tools and pipelines for that sort of thing. There are some places where you can start to look and and say, oh, you're talking about jumping from, say, a Stardew Valley or a Deep Rock Galactic or Warframe. And now you're talking about... um, something on a much higher production cost level. And I think that people get confused because there's so many tools available to us. Unreal is this magnificent tool, right? That makes it look like so many things are easy, but there's still a huge cost. And so I think that's where one big gotcha is, is yeah, no, nobody thinks that they're trying to shove a $60 million project into a $20 million box, but they are. Can I bring up another perspective on this? We were talking to a design director and their awareness of the problem you're describing was very high. And I remember how they described it was, look, the feature set is the $60 million project, but the budget isn't there. However, if I can use the 20 million they're willing to give me, to create something compelling enough, then I can sunk cost them into the other 40 million. Yes. And I think this is where what you were talking about is so important because that project didn't work out in the end. And, you know, when when Aaron and I looked at that, we were like, we kind of understood why. Because if it was 20 and they were like, I think I can get him to go to 25 or maybe 30. Exactly. Right? If it's a really good, that's okay. But it, the gap between the 20 and the 60... The idea that you can sunk cost, like, well, if we just keep making this compelling. And I think one of the, ah, this makes me feel kind of dirty when I think about it, is that there's people out there that are willing to go, oh, you're willing to give me 20 million, but I have aspirations for 60. 
but you know what? I'm going to take your 20, tell you you're going to get what you want. I think that one of the challenges is if there's people out there pitching from companies to publishers or VCs, and they find that they can't give me enough money to go as far as I wanted to. So I have two options. I downscope or I try to start and see if I can get them hooked to continue. I think that there are game studios forming and out there that are perfectly willing to, to overpromise and underdeliver with the hope that they get to keep going when they run out of money because the, what they've used the money that they had to make essentially gets the publisher or the VC to go, oh, okay, this is worth continuing. And I think that's where I, the problem is the bifurcation, the structural bifurcation of these two entities into separate buckets as if because of the complexity of game development, because it's multifaceted, because as, on the development side, I want to make the game for the player. But the reality is that my first customer is actually wherever I get the money from. Yeah. And actually, I think that that's actually divorced a lot of these studios from the results of the games that they ship. Yeah. Because the, as long as they can ship something within the box that the publisher has created for them, it's a win for them, right? They got paid. It doesn't matter if the game sucks or not. Now, I'm not saying any developer feels good when a game sucks, but the thing that their survival and their ability to feed their families, proverbially speaking, is based on is fitting inside the box that the publisher sets for them. And I personally think that that is a shitty model for making games. And by the way, I think it it shows it right now more than ever today. It shows in the quality of the AAA products that are coming out across the board now. Like I think that I, I've never seen such a slew of low quality products hitting the market. With humongous budgets. As I've seen in 2022 and 2023. And it's to me, there's something fundamentally not working. And actually, I think what, one of the things I really love about when you talk about this, Joel, is also it's like it's, it's not particularly fun for either party going on that journey. <laughs> We've baked opaqueness into the system. We have disincentivized transparency between these two parties to the point where honesty is not even considered something like you don't even talk about the fact that the developers they might be trying to sunk cost you into more money or they've sold you something they know they can't deliver and they, they're not bothered by that because it's keeping food on everybody's table. And on the business side, push comes to shove, you can cut them off or you can do this. Or you, like, And we don't actually have the honest conversation because one, we're two different parties, not together. And two, there's just no history for it. Imagine if there could be some sort of honesty between these two sides about how they're thinking and what they're doing. Joel, to your point around aligning what the product and the incentives and how we want to operate together, right. that's so off right now, but we just ignore it. It's like we're all trained to ignore it. Well, and I think where I get a little doom and gloomy is sort of going back to a couple of your previous points is, so you've got the guy out there. And let's be honest, we know this person exists who's trying to sunk cost fallacy in the business side. And then we've got the guy who comes to you and is like, okay, how, tell me how much it's going to cost to make a FPS. How many people do I need? How much does it cost? So you put both of those people in the same ecosystem and you have this incredibly low information marketplace right? And so when you do go out and you're trying to be honest and you're trying to be forthright with people and you're trying to build these structures, unless you have pre-existing relationships, it suddenly is incredibly difficult because it's like, 
well, this guy's telling me he can give me the moon and the stars on a stick for $20 million. Why do you want to give me like a popsicle in Schenectady? It gets very difficult to honestly negotiate with people if information that's out there is polluted by a lot of bad deal. Yeah. Well, and and I think, again, our outcomes reflect that environment too, which I think is the most sad aspect of this state of affairs that we're in. Like our our hit rate in general across the industry is like pretty abysmally low, even amongst other creative (laughs) fields. And so it's like, I find it funny that we're constantly splitting hairs about 10 million, 20 million, 5 million, 3 million. You know, is this person honest? Is this person not when like in reality, 90% of us are going to fail anyway? So there's a part of me that's like, what do we have to lose by trying something different now? You know what I mean? Is anyone really looking at this system that we're sort of analyzing right now and going, this is a great system. This works. This is working out fantastically. And interestingly, I feel the only people who have solid ground to stand on there are the people who aren't even really doing the innovative, creative side anyway. It's the big studios that are cranking out sequels or the big mobile studios that were raking in the cash with like definitely not slot machine games. I feel like we're probably not too far off from having an open door to exploring a different approach. I think it's already there. Yeah. I think, again, one of the things I said is unless there's exist pre-existing relationships, it doesn't happen. There are studios that have those pre-existing relationships. There are people that are making smart deals. There are good things that are going on. It's just that if you look at what's happened over the last seven years, the games industry has exploded again and again in terms of scale and scope. Right, there are so many more studios now. Realistically, how many people can have those relationships? How many people can understand how to do this and have that success and be able to mentor others that that's how you do things right? The reality is, is that a lot of us didn't have mentorship, that there's a lot of people out there trying to do this without mentorship. They're trying to do this without the relationships. And that's just hard. And yeah, even if you've got the right thing going, you've got a chance of failing. That's just par for the course. But then there's just a lot of people out there who don't have the knowledge, who don't have the experience, who don't have the relationship. And I think that's where a lot of the pain is coming from. So before we started this call, you know, Ben had lobbed one at me, which is like, okay, so what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? So I think the bad answer, but maybe the really true one, is that the worst thing that can happen to me is not getting laid off. It's actually not having the contract not go through. It's not having everyone laid off and having to tell your team, guys, pack it up. It's time to go home, find another job. The reality is that the games industry is fairly resilient. It's very, relatively speaking, it's pretty easy to find another job in the games industry. It's very volatile. There's always things opening. There's always things closing. A possible answer to what do you do is maybe sometimes on the development side, you say no, and you deal with the consequences of that. Because I'll be real honest, having gone through a couple of bad rides, I don't think that telling people you need to find another job is a worse outcome than taking people on a very bad trip through a bad product cycle. 
I have come to view the perspective you just put forward as a very enlightened, mature perspective from somebody I would expect to have been doing this a while and uh, quite a number of battle scars. It's hard for me to imagine sitting down with a junior producer for them getting laid off as is a catastrophic thing for them and explaining to them that like, hey, you know what? But if you do the right thing five years from now, <laughs> you're going to look back. I think that's true. But for them, I can imagine that that's going to have less resonance than us three talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a reality, right? And it's it's not just the games industry. It's a software development problem, in fact, which is that because things are very intangible, there are no real material costs. There's nothing. It's very hard to tell people no. Right? Why can't you make that happen? Could you try? What's the worst case if you try? Right? So in software in general, it's very hard to say, look, guys, this is not the way. I'm not saying pull the plug, let's let's all walk out. But I think the increasingly development needs to look at things through the lens of rather than trying to charge up the hill, maybe sometimes the issue is you need to find a better hill. You need to figure out how to say no or how to say, what are you trying to do here? What's our objectives? Because we're not getting there this way. Okay, so if you're just a leader out there, mm -hmm. being fired isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. Sometimes it's it may be wise to stand on what you believe to be true and say no or say, hey, to do that, this is the trade-off, or to say, I don't feel comfortable about this, right? Like, I want to have a conversation. I think I would say that that's the second thing that I would encourage, and this isn't going to be something everybody can do. If you're a junior leader, this might not be inside of your purview or right. scope or area, but... You said something earlier on the business side, they're always willing to negotiate. They're willing to negotiate. But we have worked with companies where it's like, no, we can't negotiate. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you can't negotiate. And you also know you can't deliver. So what are you going to do? Well, we're going to pretend everything's fine. I'm like, oh, that's good. So we're going to deny reality and hope it all works out in the end without any plan and actually with really a deep understanding that we're going to fail. Find a way to talk to them and understand what's important to them. Because you may discover that when you bring to them what's actually going on, they might be fine with it. They might be like, or not fine, but they may be like, okay, let's have that conversation. Let's figure right. out what we can do. Because they, if they've already spent a bunch of money, maybe they do want to stop, but maybe also they're like, no, we, we're glad we spent this money. Let's see if we can make this work. Right. In my mind, there's actually a bit of wisdom in the idea of capturing doing something interesting, doing something exciting, right? That's not a bad model. That's actually a great model, right? When you're going through, if you're building value and you can bring that back and show people, hey, look, I've built this cool stuff. Here's what I think it's gonna take to take this the rest of the way. And if that's your process all the way through, right? Not from when it starts to go wrong, but from the very beginning, then now you've, you've at least done your level best to surface your side of this conversation. Here's what I've done for you. Here's what I can be doing for you. Here's what I think that's going to take, right? The best experiences that I've had have always been ones where there's clear guidelines what the high level goals from the business side. Are we making games as a service? Are we making a box sale? How big does this have to be? 
how long do we have? All of those, if we can start to have good conversations on that side, and then we have good conversations from our side saying, okay, here's what we've got. Here's where we can go. Here's how much more it's going to take. And we're, we're straightforward and honest about those things all along the way. I mean, that's kind of all you can do, right? Is be honest, be yeah. transparent, show good work, and hope that the other side reciprocates. There was one other thing I wanted to talk about. You'd mentioned to me in the call that we had previously, stop giving me a whole ton of money and then expecting me to hire a whole ton of people. Give me a smaller <laughs> amount of money. Yeah. And let me have a few people. Yeah. Take a longer time, right? Lower risk for you. You invested less. Also, yes, it takes more time, but you're more likely to have that small group of people able to pivot into something that's worthwhile. You're basically like really, really focusing in on like manage the burn rate. It's going to help you succeed on both sides. Yeah on the publisher side and on the developer side. That's from a perspective, for me at least, of wanting to spend efficiently, right? And I understand there's different incentive structures, businesses are in different places, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're trying to spend efficiently, if you can take a small core group of people, work through the early stages of development, establish that you have a concept that's working, you've got, tools that are working, you've got pipelines that are working, you have a viable product, you've got a viable experience, whichever way you want to look at it. You can then turn on the faucet and say, great, let's throw a design team at it to script stuff out. And when I've been in situations where we've been able to do that, that's been some of the best, best gameplay, the best feeling uh, experiences and honestly, the best working environments. And I do understand there's people who are deeply suspicious of that. And they're like, well, you're just going to go off on a spirit quest for like five years and you're never going to deliver anything to me. But there's also, if you know where you want to go, and the question is, how do we get there? And you can stay focused on that goal. Again, it comes back to alignment and communication of, hey, what are we trying to do here? And sometimes you need to change the details of what we're trying to do here, but you don't really wanna be fishing out there for what the big picture is. And actually, Joel, one of the things I love about what you just said there is to me, if we could have, when I think about this idea of like, what would it look like for us to have a better conversation between publishing and development, a richer conversation, I'd love to talk more about that. I feel like there's, people are scared to have that conversation in many respects. And I, I don't understand why it's like, how awesome would it be if we started a project was just like, okay, well, what does good look like? Instead of just, we made lots of money, like, okay, got it. Like check. Now let's talk about like, let's describe a world and what where we're winning all of us. And, and I think that that could actually create some really interesting bonds and cross some bridges earlier. Yeah. If people spent more time talking about that. And I, I feel like a lot of studios and publishers handle it more on the spreadsheet level and they don't have those conversations. It's a shame. All I can say is the most senior and experienced people that I have met are the ones who are the most transparent, right? The people who have been doing this the longest, who have had the most success, they're the ones who are 
as transparent as they can legally be. They're as upfront as they can be. And they're willing to have those conversations because they've done the dance. They've seen what happens when you're trying to win. It's a very different experience when you're working with a group of people who both on the publishing side are going in and saying, okay, we're interested in making this work. And on the development side saying, okay, here's where we're, our head's at. Let's tell you what we're thinking. Can we come to a place where we're agreeing? You know, it's so interesting. I One of the things that shocked me, I was just talking to everybody at Dice and I ran into a bunch of, like I said, publishing folks. And I did hear a, a lot of what I would classify as like pedantic commentary. Like, good thing we're here to help these scraggly kids who drink Mountain Dew all day yeah. make some money off their products because God knows what the hell they'd be doing without us involved. Like, and again, I'm I'm being very facetious right now. But I've met that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was shocked actually. I hadn't ever met that guy before. And you know, and certainly I'll be honest, I've I've seen developers express their discontent with publishers in not so dissimilar ways, just yeah. as well. But like I was taken aback by, I think I walked away going like, man, this relationship is more adversarial than it should be. And I don't think that that's serving us, actually. I don't think that that's serving players. What you just described, I think there is this bit where it is almost too easy to go to a place where everybody sees themselves as the hero, right? And the other is the villain, for lack of a better term, right? They're the thing that's between me and my goal. And that to me is the ultimate sadness of all this with the way that we've structured it to this point. And it, and if there's anything, you know, we talked about transparency earlier, I love that point, but it is the, man, look at some of the successes that have come when publishing and development have been more integrated. But I believe you have a higher chance of success if you can figure out how to integrate these two parts and leave that huge chasm that currently sits between publishing and development and actually have those people working next to each other side by side. So, and I don't know where this goes, but one of the, one of the things that I think has hurt that an awful lot is the rock star moment. And I don't mean the company. I just mean the idea intrinsically that Yes, not only do we feel like we're the hero of our own story, but both finance and game development are a place where there has there's a little bit of a a hero story there, right? There's rock stars. Mm -hmm. You think of the people from the late 90s, early 2000s in the games industry and they did awesome things and they partied hard and they're awesome and they're rock stars and they're super geniuses. And you have the same sort of Wolf of Wall Street sort of, I've got the money, I make the <laughs> deals. And the weird thing is that, yeah, okay, there's a level of truth to both of those things, but a lot of us just wanna make games. A lot of us just want to make games that make us money, make other people money, make players happy. And being the rock star is not actually helpful in that process and can be quite damaging, especially if it causes you to 
not put in the effort to communicate with people or not check your ego at the door. I love that. Joel, thank you so much. Joel, it's a blast. No, it's always fun. Did you enjoy this content? Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Again, that's buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Thanks for listening.